This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello and welcome to the Over and Back Classic NBA Podcast. I am Jason Mann. And with me today, he writes for 16 Wins a Ring and Orlando Magic Daily, as well as other venues, Darway Chen. Darway, welcome to the show. Hey, Jason. All right. Thanks for having me on. So you recently wrote a piece for 16 Wins a Ring uh, called Defense Wins Championships, but it won't win the MVP. And it was a really uh, interesting look at uh, past NBA MVPs and what they contributed according to offensive and defensive win shares. And it found that the uh, share of MVP's value that comes from offense has increased almost every decade, and, and, and thus the share from defense has uh, has decreased over the years, which I, I found really fascinating. And uh, what uh, made you decide to uh, look into this idea? Well, so I've, I've always been interested in what do people value in basketball players, right? And whether it's whether they value the right things or not. And so I've always thought, you know, defense tends to be sort of the the kind of thing that goes a little bit more unnoticed, right? And offense is a little more glitzy. And so I wanted to see just whether MVP voters who are supposedly, you know, the most uh, expert people, right, in basketball, the guys who vote for MVP should, they should, out of any of us, know what they're talking about and see whether they kind of get attracted by the glitziness of offense and maybe um, don't pay as much attention to defense kind of like the rest of us do. Um, and it turns out that that's the, the case is a little more nuanced than that. It's it's maybe a little bit of of that, but it's not all that. Right. There's a lot of nuance to be uh, to kind of be parsed out in there. So I'm sure we'll get we'll get into it a little bit about that. But in in general, that is kind of why I decided to look into mm. it. And is there, you know, one thing about, um, you know, defensive win shares and even, you know, defensive box score plus minus, um, 
you know, those de- defensive metrics can only tell us so much, obviously. I mean, I, I, I think we can probably agree that the, you know, the offensive metrics do a, probably a better job of um, understanding player value and the defensive ones are still, you know, there, there's some noise there, particularly, you know, pre-1974, you know, the NBA did not track uh, defensive rebounds, steals, or blocks. Uh, so, uh, you know, how did you, you know, how, how did you decide to, you know, tra- use defensive wind chairs as, you know, something that you tracked and you know, was it just lack of an alternative or is there something about that metric that you, that you just like? Yeah, it's, a, it's admittedly, uh, well, I think anything related to defensive metrics right now, we have to admit are pretty imperfect, like no matter which metric you use, just because, you know, like you said, there's there's so many things about defense that are that are tough to track, right? And so um, there there are other things, you know, yeah, like uh, yeah, like defensive box plus minus or um, other things that are I think comparably good. But I mean, defensive win shares I think is as good as we can get for right now. And then and then the good thing is, you know, for for win shares at least, you know, they do parse it out into offensive defense, so then you can make these kind of comparisons. Whereas something like if you use PER, right, you don't necessarily get an offensive defensive component with that. So, so I use wind shares for that reason. It's not necessarily that you couldn't do the same thing with, with uh, like box plus minus. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if someone if someone wanted to do it with box plus minus, that would be interesting to see whether it also kind of correlates with with what I found because you know every metric sort of has its strengths and weaknesses. So. Yeah, if someone wanted to do that, I'd be I'd be interested to to see what they find. When you looked back at you know at, at the various MVPs, were there any that surprised you about you know who you know mostly excelled at defense and those who you know maybe uh, did worse than you expected on that end? Well, so so I'm I'm pretty young, right? I'm only 27, so I a, a lot of the stuff that I hear about old players, you know, I. Of course, I never I didn't watch them when they played, right? So I kind of have to hear stuff from from other people, and of course, the older guys you kind of hear more as legends, right? You never really hear about their their failings, right? You hear just more about what they how good they were at things. And so, for example, like I found that Bob Cousy was a guy who, in his 1957 MVP year, four offensive win shares, 4.7 defensive win shares, right? So nominally, nominally a defensive-oriented player. Not by much, but, you know, um, you could make that case. And, of course, with Kuzi, what I always remembered was, oh, I, he's like that guy who can really pass, right? Or he, or, and he could also score. Um, but apparently, according to win shares, he's uh, at least a, an adequate defender, um, if not a pretty decent defender. And, um, you know, there were other guys, like, for example, like Wilt Chamberlain um, in 1960, nine win shares, but eight def- or nine offensive win shares, but eight defensive win shares. And that's so that's actually a, a pretty balanced profile. You usually remember Wilt Chamberlain for just being able to dominate everyone around the rim. Right. So it's else with, with some of the older guys. Definitely. I was sometimes a little bit surprised. Um, with the with the newer guys, I mean, not all that surprised. You know, it's mostly well, as if you read the article, you'll you'll know that it's mostly offensive oriented guys now, right? So so Steph, uh, Durant, LeBron, uh, Derek Rose, Kobe, Dirk, Steve Nash. Those are all guys who excelled on the offensive end, and some of them were were pretty good 
defensively, but that's definitely like even the metrics will show that they were they produce way more on the offensive end. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that surprised me a little bit, you know, talking about the older players is um, the extreme to which, you know, Bill Russell to which his value was measured on the defensive end. And, and obviously, you know, you know, with the study that we've done with Russell and with his reputation, understanding that, you know, he was the great defensive player in his day, basically, um, you know, invented modern defensive concepts in terms of playing above the rim and, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, funneling, uh, funneling offensive players toward him so he could, you know, block their shot or, you know, contest their shot or, or what have you. So, but still, I, I was surprised to the extreme. And you write about how, like the '63 season, for instance, he had 13.6 win shares. 12.6 of them were defensive, and only one was offensive. And you know, his shooting percentage was very was is very low compared to you know um, modern day NBA. But it actually was not. You know, it was you know several seasons early in his career was in the top 10 and it was you know above average for most of his career so that isn't really the entire explanation for it but um that was something that surprised me a little bit in you know when you looking at your research yeah i mean bill russell's seasons i mean so he put up he had four mvp years well he won 61 62 63 and 65 he won mvp he had four seasons with double digit defensive win shares and I'm looking now just at the rest of the MVPs only. So Wilt Chamberlain put up 10.7 defensive win shares in 68. And then after that, there's no one who put up double digit defensive win shares. And it's I think in the t- in in the history of the NBA, there were only eight such seasons, eight double digit defensive win shares. Bill Russell had four of them. Right. And basically no one is ever really coming close to that. I wrote in the article, 04 Ben Wallace. So that was the year that the Pistons won the championship. Ben Wallace put up 9.1 win shares on defense. And he was tremendous. I mean, Ben Wallace was the guy um, in for like for modern bigs, right? Probably up until, until like Dwight Howard. And Dwight Howard was also, of course, really, really good. But I mean, yeah, you talk about like a guy who was just so, like head and shoulders above everyone else. Bill Russell, Ford, double-digit defensive win shares, and then since then, Will Chamberlain did it once, and then there's only three other instances of that. So Yeah, in fact, Russell has, um, I looked it up, and he has six, the, the top six defensive win shares in NBA history, and 10 of the top 16 seasons are Russell. So obviously, you know, a, a, a part in uh, in those terms, and um, you know, throughout his career, the Celtics were almost always number one in defensive rating and, and usually by a significant margin. There were a couple of times where it was close in one year where the uh, six, well, Sixers beat them. But other than that, you know, they were, you know, always, of course, right there. As we said, you know, a, a, a guy who, um, you know, basically moder- uh, basically invented a lot of the modern content, concepts of defense. Uh, you know, you dug into um, Akeem Olajuwon's 1994 season, which was the last year in which, um, you know, player won MVP with most of their value uh, defined as uh, with defensive win shares. He had 7.9 defensive win shares, which was second in the league, versus 6.4, which was offensive, uh, offensive win shares, which was 10th in the league. And um, 
you know, that was actually a fairly common trend in his career. He had two seasons in which he was in the top 10 in offensive win shares and 13 seasons in which he was in the top 10 in defensive win shares, including seven in the in the top two in defensive win shares. So, so it, it, obviously I'm aware that um, Elijah One was an excellent defender, but the amount, you know, in which his value came from defense and, and the relatively low um, in offense, you know, throughout a lot of his career, uh, surprised me quite a bit, actually. Yeah, for sure. I mean, right, most people think of Hakeem, and the first thing they think of is the dream shake, right? And that's obviously an offensive, uh, an offensive move that he is most well known for. And so, yeah, it definitely was surprising to me that Hakeem contributed more, or at least in '94, he contributed more on uh, defense than offense. But then again, you know, I mean, he was a beast with blocking shots. He, he really was. So um, it might be maybe if, if I was a little bit older, I'm 27, so I was born in 90. So in 94, I, I was probably watching basketball, but I, you know, I didn't really know how to watch it in a very sophisticated way. So I, I bet maybe if I was if I was older, maybe I could appreciate it. But yeah, so because I wasn't, it was a little bit surprising to me that he was so, so dominant on defense. Yeah, and in that year, you know, offensively, you know, 27.3 points per game. He had 11.9 rebounds per game, you know, 3.6 assists per game. I mean, he, obviously, he was incredibly productive on offense. But, um, you know, I, I would have caught, thought of him as, you know, relatively um, equal. And, you know, he had he was a good offensive player in, by all measurements that year. But just the way that he... Um, you know, was pretty dominant in the league, and and uh, uh, you know, the Rockets were second in the league in defensive rating that year, and almost always had been in the top four since '87. I think one year they they dropped to like tenth, and then actually, honestly, after this is when the team began to drop off in the in the '95 uh, season when they repeated, they were you know below tenth, and they were you know kind of around fifteenth um, after that as Elijah won in the rest of the team. I got older, but that was a that one was a bit of a, a surprise to me. Um, I add one thing. Like, so, so people might not know this. Hakeem Olajuwon is the NBA's all-time leader in blocks. Mm-hmm. He with three thousand eight hundred thirty in his career, which is which is way above Dikembe Mutombo, who's second with three thousand two hundred and eighty-nine. So he clears Mutombo by more than more than five hundred blocks. Which that that's I don't know like. For whatever reason, I never really heard about that stat very much. It was like only until I just, you know, I had to go out and look it up and I just found out, whoa, you know, he's the all-time leader in blocks. Somehow people don't really bring that up very much. Yeah, Um, I guess it's just something I take it for granted because of just all the other skills that he – uh, that he had but yeah i mean you know, obviously he was yeah. he was an incredible player I, who are some of the other um mvps that you know that were more that, that had the greater you know um defensive win share total that uh, you know stood out to you let's see i mean so like looking back at the data so so west unselled 1969 3.8 win shares on offense seven on defense that's uh that's that was a little bit surprising to me. Willis Reed the next year in 1970, um, slightly more on defense also. Uh, Dave Cowens was 2.1 on offense, 9.9 on defense. That's that's pretty lopsided. Um, and it's hard to imagine that a guy like that would would win an MVP in today's NBA. You know, that's almost like if, if you think about that's maybe kind of like if Tony Allen won, if like Tony Allen was, 
maybe even a little bit better on defense that he could win MVP or something. It feels almost like that. That's a little, that's a little weird. And then uh, Bill Walton, 1978, 3.6 on offense, 4.8 on defense. And Bill Walton is a guy that, at least to me, I thought of him as you know the big that could that could pass and you could you know run the offense through him in the you know low post or mid post maybe uh, he could uh, hit cutters and, and you know just generally distribute and do all of those things. But it turns out that in, at least in his MVP season he was a a defensive oriented guy at least according to the stats. So it's a little bit surprising. Yeah, I mean Walton definitely was um, uh, you know a guy who was you, you know smart instinctually in terms of knowing where to be on defense. I mean I I think the Russell comparisons are pretty good for um, Walton. You know, he was also you know a, a great passer as you mentioned, at, you know great at setting up the offense, great at you know uh, creating you know outlet passes for fast breaks and all that. But yeah, de- defensively, you know he was you know pretty high in block shot totals and things like that as well. So it was there you know somewhat in the numbers, but uh, you know especially in the way the team performed and you know, with all these guys, I mean, their teams were, you know, second or first in defensive rating, you know, um, during the seasons in which they won MVP, uh, you know, Cowens, the Celtics that year won 68 games. So they, they were, you know, and he was, you know, here Havlicek was definitely, you know, considered the best player in that league. And they were you know, a, a team that was not necessarily, you know, Cowens and Havlicek are stars, but they didn't necessarily have like the superstar, like, you know, Kareem who was carrying the bucks uh, during those times or, or, or Chamberlain still with the Lakers, you know, that, that level of guy, he was a little bit a tier below that, but he was you know certainly a star of his day, you know, three time, all, all defensive player and was on all NBA teams and stuff. But, um, um, but yes, the yeah. disparity between those two was interesting for Cowens, and that's sort of a. I always thought that would that MVP was a little bit strange, just because Kareem seemed like he was so much more, you know, productive in terms of you know total win shares and winches for forty eight and all that stuff. Um, I mean, I understand the context in which Cowens was, um, you know, it was awarded to him, and you know, I, so, to a degree, you know, trust the people who were watching and you know who who, who saw it during the time, and and uh, you know, trust their judgment on that. But that one's always <clears throat> struck me as a little bit odd oddball historical uh mvp decision yeah i mean kareem well so cowan's won in 73 kareem won 71 72 and 74 and i mean cow so cowan's total win shares was he had 12 total win shares in his 73 season kareem in 71 was 22.3 in 72 was 25.4 and in 74 was 18.5 so cowan's winning with 12 just seems a little bit it seems a little bit off, but yeah, again, I mean, there, there are reasons. Yeah. There, there are always reasons. Um, uh, let's see. So let's look at a few of the, uh, you know, the, the multi-time, um, MVPs. Um, I, I think that might be interesting. We'll, we'll start with Kareem since we, uh, since okay. we already were discussing him and, um, you know, in, in these seasons in which he's winning MVP, I mean, so much of his value is coming, you know, fr- from the offensive, uh, wind shares, but, uh, you know, his, uh, his defensive wind share totals are, you know, really strong as well. You know, during most of those seasons, he's, you know, either first or second in defensive wind shares. Uh, those bucks defenses are either first or second in the uh, league in defensive rating. Uh, the Lakers defenses were not particularly good. The 76, they didn't even make the playoffs that year. They were 13th out of 18 teams. And in, in 77 and 80, they were 10th and 9th in the league out of 22 teams. So, um, you know, team defensively, they were not strong, but, uh, you know, he, he had good 
very strong totals in defensive win shares and also in a defensive box for plus minus, which we have after 74, you know, he's fourth and third in the league um, in 74 and 76 and in the top 10 the other year. So he's still, um, I mean, even though, um, you know, the the large total that he is providing, it's more on offense than it is on defense. I mean, he still is providing a lot of defensive value according to these numbers. Yeah, which is, um, again, for for someone like me, which is a little bit surprising because you do think of Kareem as, um, at least his signature is a sky hook, right? And you kind of think, well, if your signature is a sky hook, then you're probably an offensive guy, which is, I mean, it's definitely true. Like just according to the win shares, he provides much more of his value from offense. But yeah, but like you said, his defensive numbers are pretty strong. I mean, like in 74, he put up 7.9 win shares on defense, right? Which, right, as I'm looking through the stats, like, so let's take some modern guys so the context is a little clearer, right? So LeBron in 2009, when he was at his apex, right? 6.5 win shares on defense, right? And LeBron is a really, really good defender, uh, at least when he doesn't have to carry a team completely on his back, which, he, he I mean, he, even when he was on the Cavs and he had to do that, he was still pretty good in defense. But 6.5 for LeBron. Uh, Kareem was 7.9. I mean, so... I mean, that just tells you that Kareem was just all around really, really good. That That's basically all that means, right? Just because he had more on offense doesn't mean he wasn't also good on defense. He was just really good everywhere. So, Well, one thing you talk about in the article, which I, I, is good to discuss, is, you know, the fact is that a player, um, you know, an individual in a game can have a greater effect on offense than an individual can have on defense. I mean, there's, you know, you can be the best defensive player in the world having the best defensive game, but you are still, you know, I I don't think there's any way you're going to be able to have the same kind of impact that, you know, James Harden is going to have in a, you know, a 50 point triple double in which he's, you know, shooting efficiently from the field. I mean, it's just, it's almost impossible for you know, a defense for one person to have, to have that level of defensive impact, you know, now five guys working together, uh, you know, um, defensively, you know, maybe another matter, but in terms of one person, I, I just think that, you know, the, on the offensive side, the, as you put it, the ceiling for offensive impact is higher than it is for defense. Yeah. I, I definitely think that's the case. I mean, for for the modern game, that's for sure the case. Like, I'm pretty much convinced of that, right? Like, like you said, an offensive guy can can carry a team in a way that it's just not really possible for a defensive guy to, right? Like, a defensive guy can't really set up teammates per se, right? Or like make a teammate better on defense. At least not like very directly, right? But an offensive maestro like James Harden can can increase the value of his teammates in a way that's not as possible for a defensive guy now in terms of like what happened you know in the 50s and 60s my guess is that something maybe I just thought of this maybe the the advent of the three-point line might have shifted the kind of the values of offense and defense right so so if you were an offensive player having the three-point line is obviously a huge net benefit right and so like in in my article i wrote that the value of or sorry the the guys in the 50s and 60s in you know there were more mvps that were defensive oriented guys back then 
And then now it's shifted so that basically there are no defensive oriented MVPs anymore. Right. And so back then it was probably easier to have an impact on defense because you didn't have to deal with a three point line. You know, that that might be a a reason. But then also, of course, there's it was probably more physical back then, you know, and and defenders could just could take advantage of, you know, being able to to bump people a lot more, you know, hand checking. Um, it was just probably a lot easier for a defensive player to to control a game back then. I mean, I, I do think largely that Russell was such a transformative defensive force that I think that largely he's the exception to this rule that a, you know, a, a defensive minded player can have that effect on the game. And I think it's because, you know, the game changed so much during his um, career and, and, and he had just the, you know, both, both the physical uh, ability to be a game changer on defense and, and, you know, protect the rim in that way. And also to be able to, you know, work, work together um with the other celtics to you know forge forge these great defenses i i I think that's that largely explains um you know what the difference between um then and now is that you know, he was just the singular force on defense that that no one has ever been able to approximate. You know, we mentioned there are a handful of other players, you know, into the seventies, um, who were able to you know have great value on defense over offense. But 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 for the most part, you know, even those guys with the you know with a couple of exceptions, those were fairly balanced season where you were getting roughly equal value in in most of those um, times. I I I think Russell was just. Um, um, you, you know, a guy who is just such a, um, you know, just a historical outlier that it, I, I think it's just largely that he just had that great of impact on the way that defense was played and the changing. And it took everyone else a while to um, catch up. I, I do think your point about three point shooting is interesting. And, and I think that might be more of a why, you know, especially in the past, you know, 10, 11 years, um, that has shifted because you, you know you look at you know the the 96 through uh 2004 period where and um and a couple of those early years the you know the three point line is was moved in so you know there's even a higher amount ratio and effectiveness of three point shooting for a couple of those years but you look at the late 90s and early 2000s those numbers um you know the percentage of um you know, offensive value for MVPs is declining a bit. It's getting into the low 60s and um, low 50s. And then Nash comes along and then has, you know, those two years. And then after that, you know, it has not uh, jumped below um, 63% since then. It's usually been in the uh, low to mid 70s and you know, with, with Nash, it peaked in the uh, in the high 80s. Nash is kind of an outlier in the other way that he provided, you know, so little defensive value, at least according to these metrics. Yeah. Yeah, I I also wanted to to point out that so so Hakeem was the last guy to to win defensively right in in '94 and then before that it was Bill Walton in '78. So really, there it, like since '78 you can you can say that there's there's been one guy in what, almost 40 years to win primarily defensively. And what's also interesting is that we can maybe see if we can talk about this a little bit. Is it's mostly big guys that can win the MVP going on, you know, mostly on defense, right? It, it seems like it's, right, so Hakeem, Bill Walton, uh, Cowens, Reed, 
Unsell, Chamberlain, Russell, Kuzi. Okay, so Kuzi wasn't a wasn't a big, right? But everyone else is a big. So, um, so that, that's kind of interesting to think about. Is on offense, you can have a guy from whatever position dominate, right? So you can have anyone from from Shaq to Chris Paul, right, or Steve Nash, you know, dominate on offense. But on defense, it's a little bit more like you kind of need to be a big in order to to really control a game, right? Even someone like, like let's say like right now, like Kawhi, right? Kawhi Leonard or Jimmy Butler, guys who are really, really good on defense, but they can, in some ways, they can kind of get schemed out a little bit. I remember reading an article, I think it was, I think it was Zach Harper when he was still at CBS, and he wrote this thing about how some teams were basically taking whatever guy that Kawhi was guarding and just putting him like way outside and basically just taking Kawhi away from the plays, you know, just putting. So like, for example, you, you could see the warriors if Kawhi was guarding, uh, let's say clay or, or Kevin Durant, right. And just putting them 30 feet out. And then Kawhi would have to stick him from out there because they can also knock down that shot. So you can't just completely sag way off. And then the rest of the offense goes four, four on four, basically. So you can do that with a wing defender, but you can't really do that with a big defender. At least it's harder to, right? Because you might not have a guy who can stretch that far, right? If you're if you're the Knicks and you have Porzingis, maybe you can put him way out there and and scheme out a a big. But it's definitely harder, right? Most most teams don't have a big who can who can shoot from you know let's say twenty eight feet. You know, I um, I think there's something definitely to that, and I I think it's because throughout most of NBA history, you know, you're either running your offense primarily through your bigs, or you are most of the scores are very dependent on their ability to get to the rim and their ability to you know to to get a, a fairly close shot. Um, and, and obviously the you know the um the big man inside is going to be the primary primary deterrent for that. So, um, you know, the, the, even the, you know, best perimeter defenders, um, you know, are, are unlikely to be able to have the kind of impact that, you know, a big interior defender is, and they're not, they're unlikely to be able to, you know, guard, you know, someone like Shaq or somebody that you can throw the post into. I mean, you know, even the, some of the greater smaller defenders are, are not going to be able to do that very well. It's just going to be very difficult. I, obviously, you know, within the last five years and Curry is the best example of this um, with, with guys who are more reliant on the three point shot and more effective out there, you can, you create greater value without, you know, having to get to the rim as much. I mean, obviously those guys still, you know, rely on getting to the rim and rely on drawing fouls and, and that kind of thing, you know, Harden in particular as a modern example. But I I think that's allowed kind of the geometry of the court to change and, and obviously change the, you know, some of the ways that value can be created in the game. Yeah. And I, I wonder whether, you know, we have, we see some teams now, you know, that just shoot so many threes, right? So the like the Houston Rockets, for example, you know, I there are some games where they'll shoot 40, 50 threes, you know, in a game. And I, I wonder whether that will decrease the the value of a like a rim protecting big at least a little bit, right? It's it's not I mean obviously rim protection is still really good, right? Because you the the two most efficient 
field goal attempts are three-point shots and shots at the rim, right? So a rim-protecting big is still very important. But if teams are going to be taking 40 or 50 threes, and it seems like every year they're setting a new record for three-point attempts, you know, just as a league, maybe the value of a rim-protecting big is going to go down at least a little bit. That, 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 would, be my, that would be my guess. Um, and that would be interesting to see if that's reflected in the, you know, in things like the MVP voting, which it seems like at least it might be. I mean, there's not very many bigs in the MVP race right now. Right. I mean, it's mostly wings and guards. So, I mean, you know, it looks like we have a new generation of, you know, really interesting, multidimensional, multi-talented bigs. I mean, obviously, you know, Anthony Davis and, um, Carl Anthony Towns, you know, guys like that, um, who I think could be, could, you know, because of their ability to shoot from the outside and because of their speed and length and, you know, maybe their ability to be able to both protect the rim and be able to, you know, guard guys in the perimeter once they're, you know, developed a little bit more, you know, under part of, you know, stronger defensive schemes, nowhere to be that, you know, that kind of stuff. I, I could see some of those guys, you know, being part of, of a generation where they can just do so many things and create so much value with, you know, their, um, um, with a wider range of skills than, you know, bigs may have had to have in the past. But I, I think we're just, you know, a few years away from those guys, you know, being able to reach that level. Yeah, it's going to be really exciting when when all those, all of these uh, young bigs who are, like you said, like multi-talented. So, yeah, like Embiid, Towns, um, Porzingis, Giannis, Jokic, uh, Davis, uh, maybe Boogie to some extent. Like all these guys are like just bigs that we haven't really seen very much of before, right? And it's going to be fun when they are the stars of the show. Like right now we're still in a little bit of the the LeBron extended prime kind of dominance, right? But then after LeBron, then it's going to be guys like like who I just named and then maybe, of course, Kevin Durant is sort of like, I mean, people forget Kevin Durant's actually seven feet tall. <laughs> so he's sort of a big two i mean he doesn't play like one but he's but i mean he he can he can actually protect the rim decently well if if that's what he's called to do like he's usually not necessarily called to do that just because of course well the warriors have have draymond right and then the the thunder had stephen adams and so he could just chase the best perimeter guy and be a you know just dog them the whole game but i mean it's gonna be fun yeah when all when all these um new bigs start dominating the league. I'm really looking forward to that. So a couple, I want to talk a little bit more about a few of the other, um, you know, multi-time MVPs before we, uh, before we get going. But um, it was interesting to me that uh, Moses Malone, um, he, he was, he was not only one of his MVP seasons was he in the top 10 in uh, defensive win shares. He was second in 1982 and uh, 79 and 82 Rockets MVP years that he won MVP, the Rockets were actually 21st in defensive rating in 79 and 16th out of 23 teams in 82. So I, I, I found that interesting given, um, you know, I don't know if Moses necessarily had the reputation of being, you know, a awesome defender. I mean, he was two-time all-defensive uh, team, um, and he obviously he was one of the great rebounders of all time, but he was more famous for his offensive rebounding than for his defensive rebounding. I mean, he was good, he was good at both, but he was a transcendent offensive rebounder, so that much... He's kind of an interesting um, 
a, a, a little bit of a, um, a you know enigma in, in that way you know he he's this you know he's one of the great bigs of all time but he did not really create defensive value at least in you know the ways that we traditionally measure it yeah i i mean i i definitely remembered what i remember moses is that you know he was the the guy who would just be able to grab you know two three offensive boards on a, on a single possession so um yeah we used to like when i was playing when I used to play pickup, we would always, you know, if, if a guy like missed a shot and then repeatedly kept trying to put it back and kept missing and then put it back. And then we would always say that he's just trying to pull a Moses, just trying to pad his stats on rebounding or something. But yeah, so, so I never, yeah. Um, although I'm, I'm looking at the stats now. I mean, so in 83, he put up six defensive win shares, which is decent. I mean, yeah. six, six is, is actually not bad, right? That's, so I'm, I'm looking at, I'm going to look at the modern guys for a comparison. Right, so Le- so LeBron in 2009 was 6.5. Um, LeBron in 2010 was 5.2. I mean, so he's like between those. Right. I mean, it's not bad. Th- that was the one year that seemed to be an exception where he was really good yeah. in that metric. Other years, not as much. And then he was also never in his career in the top 10 in defensive boxer plus minus, which is just a little bit of a surprise. Um yeah. To me, um, Bird graded out better than I expected. Um, in his MVP seasons, he was either first or second in defensive win shares, and then he was between five and tenth in defensive box score plus minus. And the Celtics were um, they were first in '86 in uh, in um, defensive rating, and then in the top five in the other uh, seasons. Um, Magic, I, he belied his general lack of uh, defensive reputation. He was. Um, in his MVP seasons, he was not in the uh, top ten in defensive win shares, um, and the and the Lakers were around seventh or eighth in defensive rating in the league during those seasons. But that's uh, they were never you know particularly stout defensive team. They were you know good enough uh, because you know, they were such a high powered offense. But they were um, you know usually between five and eight somewhere you know even even in their uh, in during their championship seasons. But um, but I think in those cases it basically well Bird was a little better than I expected, but it basically agreed with what I would have um, thought. One that I did find interesting was Jordan, um, and this is one where defensive win shares and defensive box plus minus kind of had a split because um, Jordan graded really well in defensive win shares. He was, you know, in, in the top six in every season. He won MVP in defensive win shares, but was not in the top ten in defensive uh, box plus minus. The, the the Bulls generally were um, a, were a you know top six or seven defense during. Those years, they were uh, first in '96. Of course, the year they won uh, 72 games. But I, 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 like we talked about the for the most part for when the research that I did, which was not quite as exhaustive as yours, the defensive win shares and defensive box score plus minus they were generally you know pretty close to consistent. But uh, the two players that were um, that I looked at where it was different were Jordan and also LeBron James, who. was really stout in defensive win shares Um, in his MVP seasons. He was second or third uh, for the most part, but only one of those years was he in the top 10 in defensive box score plus minus. So um, I I don't know what that says. I, 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 maybe it's because they are more, you know, they're, they're more perimeter oriented players, although, you know, bird was to an extent too. Um, So I, I, I don't know that that was sort of an odd, um, somewhat of a disparity, but um, you know, the other guys, those things were very close, but I, I mean, so I, I don't know if there are any other huge surprises uh, to me in terms of, you know, the guys who, you know, won multiple MVPs. But, um, you know, it, it was interesting, uh, interesting to look at for sure. Yeah, I'm 
so yeah, Larry Bird, like, yeah, I, I agree with you. Larry Bird was a little bit surprising and that his, at least according to defensive win shares, was relatively comparable to Jordan. Like he was, he was comparable. And so, I don't know, cause I always, whenever I heard debates about, you know, the kind of like the, the, the Holy Trinity, right. Of like the eighties and the nineties is, is Jordan bird magic. And whenever you heard debates about them, the Trump card that people always had that were that were fighting on the MJ side was that, well, he was way better on defense, right? That, that was kind of always the, the Trump card. It's like you, you might say that Magic and MJ and Larry were all good on offense and maybe equally good. Okay, fine. But MJ was always better on defense. But then according to these, according to defensive win shares, it doesn't seem to be, at least he's, Jordan isn't obviously way better than Larry Bird. He is better than Magic. And that's probably we can say that for sure. But compared to Larry Bird, it's not it's not no contest. You know, it's it's possible that Larry Bird could at least um, approximate MJ on the defensive end. So I, I don't know necessarily whether we can say for sure that um, one is better than the other. But I'm just saying it's it is at least a contest, I think. Yeah, yeah, the numbers are interesting there. I I would think that um, a lot of that um, is Bird's defensive rebounding was pretty strong um, throughout his career. That 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 might be you know one thing giving him some um, value that you know, obviously Jordan you know w- wouldn't have had. Just a guess, but, but yeah, that, that makes sense to me. Um, I don't know. Is there anything else that uh, stands out to you that's interesting to you know that you found in your research or a- anything else you'd like to talk about? Um, yeah, I'm just looking through the stats right now. Um, man, still can't believe Derek Rose won MVP that year. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's, I, I really, I mean, so I'm, I'm from Orlando. I kind of thought Dwight maybe could have, could have won, could have won that year. Or maybe it could have been LeBron then when LeBron would have won five times in a row. Yeah. That would, that would be that, that he'd probably be the first guy to do that. Right. I don't think anyone's won five yeah, in a row no before. No one's won more than three in a row. Yeah. Um, you also kind of forget that that Jordan had a few had a few times where you know he, he had an MVP kind of stolen from him, right? Like Charles Barkley in '93, which I mean, not that Charles isn't good. Obviously, if you can win MVP, you're really good, right? It's not to say that they're not good. It's just that man, like so Barkley winning over Jordan in '93, and then Karl Malone winning it in '97 over MJ. Um, yeah, so sometimes it's just fun, right? Just to, just to go back and kind of forget some of these seasons that, that guys had, like. Like Kevin Garnett in 04 was a beast. Oh my God! Like 18.4 total win shares. That's like on par with LeBron's 2010 season, and that kind of gets lost in the mix a little bit yeah. um, because of you know people maybe emphasizing team win loss a little bit too much, right? Like anytime a guy is on a team that doesn't advance very far, and they just kind of forget that you know you know basketball is a team sport. You know there, there's there can be guys that are really really good and they just don't have the the they're not fortunate to play for a team that really gets to showcase them all that much so yeah it's just it's just fun to look back i, I encourage people to just go back and and look at these seasons and just remind yourself of of uh, guys that had that had really good seasons back then that you might that might have been lost over time and you know that, that's good that you guys have this podcast to to kind of remind people of of history you know i i saw you guys did a a Hall of Fame, a Hall of Fame thing um, recently, right? And reminded me about about TMac, which I don't need any reminding about TMac because I'm again I'm from Orlando, so I um, TMac is probably 
my favorite player of all time. So I, I don't need reminding. But there might be some people who do, right? <laughs> sure. Yeah, it, it's interesting with some of these guys now who, of course, were big in the you know mid-2000s, but we're a long enough distance from that where you know those memories are going to start fading a little bit. And, um, you know, obviously, you know, younger fans who have come in who, you know, if you're – I don't know if if you're 20, you don't necessarily have like a you know necessarily a great memory of T Mac when he was absolutely at his peak. You know that was you know 12, 13 years ago now. So um, you know it, it's interesting to uh, you know we, we've focused more on deep history um, in, in general, but you know, now that there's this you know now the you know, pretty soon the early 2000s are going to be deep history. So how do we explore that and how to make that interesting for people is going to be something we'll uh, we'll challenge us on the podcast. So I'm sure we'll figure out a good way of handling it yeah that's that's crazy yeah yeah time really goes by goes by so fast yeah when, when t-mac was good in the early 2000s for the magic yeah i was in uh middle yeah i was in i was in middle school and i yeah i would remember i remember just you know listening to the radio um on you know some magic games whenever i couldn't catch it on tv you know just listening to the radio and and t-mac was it was his uh 02 season i think where he scored 32 on a team where you didn't have to guard anyone else that was that was pretty insane. But you also kind of forget, yeah, it, I mean, yeah, time really does go by fast. I mean, like people kind of forget that Dwight Howard in uh, the late the late 2000s, like how, just how dominant he was. I mean, he won three, three Defensive Player of the Year awards in a row. And it looked like for the foreseeable future that he was just going to win it every single year. Like, honestly, like if you, if at the end of his, the third year which he won, which was, I think, 20, uh, probably 2010 season. At the end of the 2010 season, if you told me that he was going to win, you know, three more in a row, I would have, yeah, I would have agreed. I, I would have put down money on that. Right. <laughs> but then things, you know, things change fast. I mean, just like an injury, an injury here or there or getting put onto the wrong team, uh, some sort of chemistry dysfunction, you know, a lot of, a lot of things can a lot of things can go wrong, so you never take anything for granted. I mean, there's so many stories of, of teams that, that probably shoulda shoulda won that didn't. You know, sometimes because of yeah, because of injuries or chemistry. Some of it's not even not even that, right? If we um, you know, if you want to talk about like the Kings in 02, for example, I will always believe that the Kings in 02 shoulda won a championship, and they were robbed. <laughs> <laughs> so, so sometimes it's yeah. It, you know, you never really know what's going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it makes it fun, nevertheless. Unless yeah. you're a Kings fan, then you're not having that much fun right now, unfortunately. Yeah, that's not fun. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Darwin, thank you so much for uh, being on the show. Really appreciate your uh, thoughts. And, and again, really enjoyed the article. We'll include a link to it in the show notes. So anyone who hasn't had a chance to read it should uh, definitely check it out. Okay. All right, Jason. Uh, thanks for having me on. This is fun. Let's do it again. All right. Sounds good. And uh, thanks, everyone, for uh, listening. You can find us at the step back at fansided.com. Uh, you can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcast. Uh, rating and review would be greatly appreciated. It helps people uh, find us and it gives us some satisfaction for our egos, which is even more important. And uh, also, you can uh, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Over and Back NBA. So uh, thanks again for listening, and we'll be back again soon. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. 
With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.